When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello, and welcome to Awesome Etiquette, where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on not driving everyone home after dinner, wearing a white top to a wedding, jacuzzi jet etiquette, and departing roommate etiquette. For Awesome Etiquette sustaining members, we talk about disposable cups and your friends. Plus, your most excellent feedback etiquette salute and a postscript segment from Laura Claridge's biography, and it's about Emily Post as a debutante. We dive into her ball. All that coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of Vermont Public Radio and is proud to be produced in Burlington, Vermont by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Setting. Oh, good. It feels like we're, I'm about to have a week, a week and a half. Are you ready to go? <laughs> I know. By the time this show airs, this will all have been in the past. But I am gearing up to head down to New York City for the National Stationery and New York Now gift shows, where Dan and I are actually going to be doing a live performance of our podcast. Yes. I know. But we've also got meet and greets and book signings. And I'm giving a talk on CBD and cannabis gifting etiquette, along with Lauren Miele of Kushkar. So I'm really excited about that. But it is a lot of work prepping for a trade show and uh, having your car be non-existent just before it it was like i'm i'm in this sp- i know i know i know how did your car disappear my jeep my lizzie mobile <laughs> i don't know what it was my favorite car ever and it was the car benny and i were always in together so it's especially hard um but it it died on me it completely died to the point where the repairs are more than the car is worth and so it's time to figure out getting a new car which was not something i was ready to do and unfortunately, that has now been pushed back like another two weeks. And so I'm still carless. And I was like last night at midnight, I was renting automobiles and then, you know, figure out what was going to be re- what What's size. What's the trunk space? Yeah. This- what do we need? And, and are, am I guaranteed to get a car this big or am I going to show up and there's only going to be, you know, like a mini Cooper on the lot? And I'm like going, my stuff's too big. to fit. I have no idea what's going to happen. I should really think in the positive. But it is trade shows are always kind of a big deal. There's a lot of prep for them. And so I've been as as the week has gone on and all the little hang ups and hiccups are coming up. I'm, I'm trying to breathe through it. I'm trying to keep my patience, but I'm also really, really grateful for the two ladies who are helping to coordinate us at the trade show. Jenna and Awanda are being amazing. And last night on my phone call with the two of them, I told Awanda that you are like a giant hug because I, I just like hearing all the things that are offered, not what we discussed, and then getting to the point where you are sitting there going, hey, Lizzie, it wouldn't be a trade show. Like, I be worried if things went smoothly. I that was like the kind of message that just oh, it brings you back to that place of there are people here helping figure this out. There's ways to work through things. There are solutions. Um, so yes, even us etiquette experts get stuck in the moment of oh my gosh, where's the solution? And sometimes there's that really nice person who's been through it before. And I haven't done trade show in ten years, so who's been through it before recently and is saying, you know, we're gonna get through this, and it's all okay. <laughs> and I should tell everyone out there that. By way of explanation, this is all falling on you because yeah. <laughs> I have seminars before and after. Yes. So I will drive in for the middle couple days. But the organizing, the setup, the takedown, that is 
100% Lizzie Post <laughs> with some helping angel help. Yes, with some helping angel help, some big helping angel help. So I'm really excited. And I think it's going to be a really great opportunity for us to connect. Uh, you know, I'm really hoping that out of it we can finally get that that greeting card line and stationary line that you all keep writing to us asking about. When is it going to be ready? When are you guys going to do some stuff like this? We're really excited and, and hopefully we'll get to make a lot of those great connections and hopefully you'll have a lot more fellow Awesome Etiquette listeners after we do our live Awesome Etiquette podcast at the trade show. Bottom line, I'm really excited for this show. <laughs> well, a big thank you from your cousin Dan for spearheading this and taking it on because it was something I was excited about when they first reached out to us, but it just wasn't. It was during a week you were like so busy <laughs> to actually stay excited and say yes, I want to work with you on this. Yeah, I want to thank you for something else also. What, what's that? I look ridiculous this morning. You do not. Okay, I have a big guys, cowlick sticking I up really, off the back of my head, is... and you have not made any fun of me for it, and I oh, really appreciate my it. My goodness. First of all, how can I? My hair, because I always drive with my windows down, looks like frazzled everywhere I go. But secondly, like I can't see the cowlick. I can't. It's only when you turn sideways and only to the one side. I look like alfalfa. It's really funny. He doesn't even look remotely close to alfalfa. You are such a riot. I will take the thank you though. I, do I say you're welcome? That feels like a weird one to say you're welcome for. <laughs> We'll uh, offer an etiquette dispensation. Okay, great. Let's offer some etiquette advice as well. How about? Let's do it. Onward to questions. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions on how to behave. And if you have a question for us, you can email it to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. Leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just remember to use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your social media posts so that we know you want your questions or comment on the show. Sustaining members, remember to put sustaining member in your message. We'll answer your questions over on the sustaining member site where you can access an ads-free version of your show and all your bonus questions. Don't forget, we're answering from a smaller pool over there, so you're pretty much guaranteed to get your question answered. Awesome Etiquette gets support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? (laughs) StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. (laughs) After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our first question today is titled, Chauffeur I Am Not. I enjoy going out for dinner with a group of friends every month or so. We all live about 10 or 15 minutes from one another. 
I've noticed a pattern where my friends either walk, take transit, or Uber to wherever our destination is for dinner, and I mostly drive. There are other drivers in the group who choose not to drive. After dinner, I'm usually asked with how I got there, and then I feel I have to offer everyone a ride home since none of them drove. Even though the distance between us is not too far, it ends up taking me an additional 20 or 30 minutes by the time I drop off everyone and I actually reach home. That's not something I enjoy doing, and I would prefer to go straight home. Is there a way to tackle this without offending anyone? If so, sample language, please. Or do I just suck it up and play group chauffeur? Many thanks, Anonymous. This is like a Seinfeld episode dropped right into our laps. You know, it's like the, yes, I have the car, and yes, I can bring you all home, but... But it's kind of uh, annoying every time. This reminded me a little bit of my cousin. This is like, he's a little bit of the guy who's like, yeah, I could, but no, I don't really want to. And like, how do I say no to this? (laughs) Like, Just say no? Yeah, exactly. The other thing that I'm noticing is that you say after dinner, I'm usually asked with how I got there, and then I feel like I have to offer everyone a ride. Step one, I would say, see what happens if you just don't offer the ride. If you just simply say, oh, I drove, looking forward to get home and going to bed, you know, just that. Very simple. And then just, you know, good night, everybody. Give your hugs and goodbyes, waves, whatever they are to say goodbye, and then go to your car. I love that idea of subtly seeding the conversation. Oh, I drove tonight. I love getting home quickly so I can get right to bed. I mean, that's too much (laughs) me mangling the sample script but the idea i i I really appreciate totally i also think that that this is one of those really hard ones because if let's say instead of you feeling like you have to offer they're actually asking hey i walked here oh we took an uber we did you drive your car could we maybe get a ride home because people who are close friends often feel comfortable asking such things that becomes a much harder thing for me to say no to personally it's not that you can't. And certainly the sample language to that is something to the effect of, oh, I really want to get home and get to bed quickly another night, perhaps. And then you just go on your merry way again. But (laughs) this all ends with you just going on your merry way. But I think that it's really hard in that moment when a number of these people might live fairly close by and it's not actually a huge deal to drive them, you know, but at the end of it, you're not feeling good. And it's it's this tough little twist of a place because it's a simple kindness, but then it's a simple kindness that grates on you. And that's really, really frustrating. I'm a fan of a little bit of the maneuvering tactic, and that is to Talk to someone in the group that you think would really understand kind of the pickle of this problem. And you might even say to them something like, you know, Sarah, I'm in a pickle. It seems really silly to not offer people rides home after our dinner's out. But each time I do, it ends up adding a lot of time to my commute home. Is there some way we could rotate who drives people home or just take into consideration that I seem to be the driver every time? And I think that that starts to get you into the space of getting someone else to see what this is like from your perspective. You know, depending on where you live and what traffic is like and those sorts of things, it really could add a significant amount of time to getting home and having a good night's sleep and feeling good about everything. I think what you want to avoid are saying things like, I don't want to be the driver every time, or it's not fair that I'm always driving, or, you know, I'm not the group chauffeur guys. We put that title on here, not our question asker. Exactly. I think those kind of things bristle people. But if you just simply let them know, you know, I am trying to, to get home quickly, and this actually is adding quite a lot of time to do it. I can do it sometimes, just not every time. I think that helps to be understandable. It's for me, a little bit the cumulative effect. Yes. Even if it just adds 15 minutes each time or 20 minutes or 10 minutes each time, by the time you've done it three or four times in a row, it's an hour of your life. It starts to add up. And you might acknowledge that as well. It's not about the particular inconvenience any one occasion gives, but it's it's really about the the cumulative effect over time. And that's another idea you can put on the table. I like your idea of talking about about this with people ahead of time, not in the moment that it's happening. Mm-hmm. I like the idea of acknowledging that 
it's a bit of a conundrum. I'm in a pickle. It's 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 not a big problem. It's <laughs> not I like I need you to solve <laughs> this for me or make it better or listen to me complain a lot. But I just want you to know where I'm at. We're a bunch of friends. We have dinner all the time. And this is a feature of that for me. I think what makes it easy to get that kind of tone and casualness with it and, and lightness with it is the fact that at the end of the day, you can say no. I can't drive you home tonight or no, I'm not up for giving everyone rides, but I'm excited to see you all next time. That's an easy thing to do. <laughs> um, and when you when you realize that you actually have that out, you have that no in your power, in your toolbox of thing, like politely declining, I think it makes it easier to do the softer side of the ask, which is, you know, like, hey, is, you know, this is a trend and I'm wondering if maybe we could rotate it or disperse it a little among the group. <laughs> Anonymous, thanks for your question. And we hope you're able to get home a little quicker next time. No matter which side of the wheel we're on, we are prone to stand up for our rights or what we feel are our rights, rather than being courteous and safe. Think about it the next time you have the choice. Be courteous and smart. This question is titled, Wearing White to a Wedding, Still Taboo? This question never gets old because every outfit is different. Phoenix listener Bridget called in with this question, and we are going to take a listen right now. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. It's Bridget calling from Phoenix. I want to know how the two of you feel about guests wearing white to a wedding. Um, I'm going to a wedding of a niece um, who's quite a bit younger than me. In over Labor Day weekend, and I have a colorful skirt and a white top. I'm wondering if that's okay to wear. I'd really like to wear it if I could, but I really don't want to make a mistake. So please advise. I don't know what the Internet says. Things have changed so much. I was still under the impression that family couldn't host a bridal shower. So I know that's changed Uh, But I wondered if wearing white to a wedding had remained firm as far as the top goes and as far as being of a different age level. And I hope you're both doing great and enjoying the summer. Bye-bye. Bridget, thanks for the question and thanks for leaving us a voicemail. We love to hear your voice. It adds something to the show and Lizzie and I really like getting to know you and the sound of your voice just a little bit better. As far as your question goes, the, the big etiquette umbrella that this question falls under is the old idea that you don't wear white to a wedding. Mm -hmm. And that is an idea that has changed and evolved a little bit as the number of choices that people have about what they're going to wear has really broadened. And the choices that brides and grooms make about what they wear has changed a lot. The advice has shifted a little bit. The, The current version of the don't wear white to a wedding advice is that you don't distract from the bride or groom that you really try to keep the focus there and the attention there as much as possible. The original don't wear white prescription was about not looking like the bride, not sort of stealing her thunder on that special day where she's in a long white gown and looks really beautiful. And maybe you look really beautiful in your white gown also. As long as you're not distracting or drawing attention away from the place that you really want to keep that attention, you're probably in pretty good shape. It's a good idea to have that old rule in mind because it helps you observe the new rule and honor the spirit of it. But it's it's not a solid, hard no the way it used to be. I'm going to give you my, my quick take on this, Bridget, and that's that on um... – Number one, I would stay away from anything that is an actual white dress. You are describing a white top and a very colorful skirt. I think that that's different enough. It's also a separates piece. So while some wedding dresses are separates, it's a little more unusual. And so I think you're going to be just fine in what you're wearing. There's an age difference between you and your niece that I think also helps. But I also really want to say that one of the best things that you can do is to run the idea by the bride. 
just double check with her because we never do know what might offend someone. And some of this isn't necessarily about just looking like the bride, but it's about making the bride feel comfortable on her big day. Same goes for grooms, except that the wardrobe is more limited and most guys end up looking very similar in a lot of the things that they wear. I know Dan's like going, even no matter how hard I try. But I think that it's it's really important to double check with the bride to make sure that she wouldn't feel uncomfortable with it. And you're close enough with the bride that you could do that. You're close enough in terms of being family members and such. For other people who are wondering about this, a lot of people wonder, well, can I wear my short white dress? Can I wear my dress that has a white background but a lot of pattern on it. This really depends. It really depends. How white is your short white dress? Are you a 10-year-old girl or are you a, you know, comparable age to the bride and, you know, it really does then look like you're kind of stepping on some toes? There's a lot of small caveats that make this a yes or a no answer. And I will always maintain that coming back to run your outfit by the bride is the best way to know for sure. It's the no-fail option. Bridget, thanks so much for your question. We hope you have a fabulous time at your niece's wedding, and my fingers are crossed that you get to wear the outfit you want to wear. Well, just what does thoughtfulness mean? How does it fit into your everyday life? Our next question is kind of another Seinfeld conundrum. I know, right? We're calling it Jacuzzi Jet Etiquette. Hi, Dan and Lizzie. I live in a high-rise condo building with shared building amenities. Two of those amenities are a pool and jacuzzi. The jacuzzi has a timer for the jets that we can turn on if desired. My three-and-a-half-year-old hates the bubbles for some reason. I explain to her that if the bubbles are on when we arrive, then she has to deal with it. But if it's just us, we keep them off. Now, my question is about jet etiquette with varying differences when there are multiple people with varying desires. What's the etiquette? The other day, this woman arrived after my daughter and I and asked if we minded if she turned them on. And my daughter said, no, I don't like them. And she turned them on anyway. I was definitely bothered. But if someone wants the jets on, are they always right? Thoughts? Anonymous, thank you so much. First, I I really do want to thank you for asking this question because it's an interesting question. It gets at this idea of communal things and first come, first serve and trying to make everybody feel comfortable. Listening to kids. I was going to say age differences play a big part here, too. I'd like to point out that this person in your example asked your preference and then ignored it. When you were in the jacuzzi first, this person showed up asked a preference question, and then changed the environment even after the preference was stated. I tend to think of this as a first-come, first-serve type situation with a time limit. I like that. Yeah, and so if you only just got into the jacuzzi and this person asked you politely, you could say, oh, we just hopped in and my daughter is really not fond of the jets. Would it be all right if we left them off for the next 10 minutes and then we'll pop out and you can use them all you want? I think that's a really reasonable agreement. It shows that you're thinking about how long it would be. You're setting a time limit on not having the bubbles. You're giving a reason as to why you would prefer not to have the bubbles. I think it also, from an adult perspective, it comes across... I I, I love encouraging kids. I love encouraging kids and adults to have interactions. I think that having a child look up at you and just say, no, I don't like them, feels very curt and like, wait a minute, I pay for this too, and you're a child. And I think there is a little bit of that that can still go on, and you might have been dealing with that. This is a big assumption here with this other person who joined the jacuzzi space. So there are times and places where I think it's actually pretty good for parents to speak up on a child's behalf. This would be one of them. It's also your child's preference. You don't mind the bubbles. (laughs) If instead you've been in the jacuzzi for a while, I think it's nice to turn to your daughter and say, sweetie, we've been soaking for a while now. How about we get out and let this lovely lady use the jets? And I think that's also a really nice consideration to show. It recognizes that you've kind of had your time here. You've you've enjoyed this space and others now want to enjoy it. So why don't we let them enjoy it the way they would like to? Um, I think it's perfectly reasonable. It's also a really good way to teach your daughter about sharing, which 
I think you're doing a great job of by setting those limits of if the jets are on, that's just what's going on. So I don't know. How'd I do, parenting person on the other side of the mic? (laughs) I like it. I don't have a lot to add. You've covered sharing, taking turns, first come, first serve, listening to people when they talk about their preferences. The only thing that I think I could add would be something we do here on this show pretty regularly, which is think about what etiquette advice we would give to the person who's on the other side of the equation. In this case, the person coming in, yes. The person arriving who's asked this question. If you find yourself getting an answer from a child, a young person, and you're wondering about it, you can sort of look at the parent and see if they're on board with this as well. Mm -hmm. If you're not willing to do that, I say listen to the kid that that you've you've asked and you've gotten an answer and you could engage with that a little bit more oh do you not like the bubbles or something like that thinking as a parent could we turn the bubbles on in 15 minutes <laughs> you know <laughs> rather than just ignore completely what it is that you've heard yeah and go and turn on the jets absolutely I'm wondering what Seinfeld would think of our answer. I know. There's a very Seinfeldian show. (laughs) It's it's a little bit like pizza toppings. Yeah. Oh, that was such a good one. (laughs) It's not a high stakes question, but there's a lot going on here. Absolutely. Anonymous, thank you so much for sending in this question. And we hope you have lots of fun, bubble-free time in the jacuzzi. That's certainly more fun than disputing over it, isn't it? We call this way of settling a dispute a compromise. That's when neither has his own way entirely. But did you know that there are different kinds of disputes and different ways to settle them? Our next question is about details of the departure. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. First off, want to start by saying I love the podcast and will be sad when I'm finished listening through the backlog. Got about 75 left. Ooh, you're catching up quick. My roommate of three years just let me know that she wants to move out even though our lease isn't up for another 10 months. We have a 15-month lease. She's having a lot of personal issues and feels she'll be happier living alone. She doesn't have a definitive date of when she will be moving out as she hasn't found a new place yet, which is making it hard for me to seriously look for someone to take her place. Also, I don't know if she realizes that when she moves out and there's no one to take her place— not for lack of looking on my part, she is still on the hook for her half of the rent until someone can move in. We are both listed on the lease and both signed it, and I definitely cannot afford it on my own. Breaking the lease early is a huge expense, so not really an option for me to just move out too and find somewhere else to live. How can I have the conversation with her about needing a date as well as her financial responsibility after she moves out if her room is still vacant? We were friends before becoming roommates, and I don't want this to impact our friendship, but this is just business. Any sample scripts or advice you can provide would be much appreciated. Thanks. Please don't make me beg for rent. Oh, no. I I wince a little bit. I ug a little bit. This is a tough problem, but because it's a money question, I think there are some clear parameters and boundaries that can really help you. I was going to say, because there's a lease and you both signed it, you have such a wonderful third-party tool to use at your disposal. I was going to say, bring that lease agreement to the discussion that we're going to suggest you schedule and have with your current roommate, if not future roommate. Absolutely. Another umbrella piece of advice I'd like to give is that discussions about money should be candid and honest. Mm -hmm. You should prepare yourself ahead of time for what you're comfortable talking about in terms of your own personal finances, but also be prepared to talk clearly and plainly about the shared agreement that you made and what you think are the good solutions moving forward because you need to have some concrete things to talk about and make decisions about. It can't just be an emotional negotiation here because there are some concrete details that are going to affect both of you moving forward. Absolutely. And I think that a good place to start is a tip that Dan usually has, which is ask permission to have the conversation. Rather than just walking in with the lease in hand and grabbing her at whatever moment you can find her at, I think it's really good to prep and say, hey, I would love if we could pick a time to sit down together and talk through the details of you moving to your next place. I even think moving to your next place is more gentle than you moving out, (laughs) which sounds like 
like harsh. There are a couple things I'd really love to cover before you find a new place. This lets someone know that, oh, there are some things we probably have to think about. And it's a very gentle ask. It's not an accusatory ask. So you're likely to get someone willing to come to the table. Then when the meeting does happen, I think you need to bring a copy of the lease and you guys need to look at it together because one of the big things you might be up against is whether or not your roommate is allowed to sublet at all. Some landlords do not allow that to happen. And so that's a really important consideration to take in. So look at the lease together. That way you both know what you've agreed to legally. You can even look at things like what the cost to break this lease would be. And often if there's one person who's really wanting to break it, then it's often that person who will offer to pay for the broken lease and then you both move on to different places. I am hesitant to say that it is totally your responsibility to find someone to fill, Dan's like nodding big time over there, to fill the spot. But I do think that it's important that you get someone you can live with. And that's a delicate balance to put into play. I think that's one of the places in this negotiation where there's real, not just wiggle room, but a choice to be made that isn't necessarily a clear choice. Who finds the new roommate? Who approves them? And maybe that's the landlord who needs to have some say mm-hmm. in that. This might be a three-party process. It could be that you really want to find that person and pick who it's going to be because it's going to impact and affect you the most. Right. You can always take it on yourself for sure. You might not want to have anything to do with it. You might want that to be your roommate's responsibility. And part of the the terms for her leaving is that she needs to find someone. Maybe to help you find someone, you need to have a date certain where you can offer the place and make it available to Mm -hmm. people. There are no right answers to any of those questions. It really is up to you and your roommate and maybe your landlord to decide. And that's why the discussion is so important. Please don't make me beg for rent. We don't think you're going to have to beg for rent, but we do think that an honest, clear conversation is in your future. Well, that's how Eddie Johnson learned something about trustworthiness. And what about you? Do you always keep your trusts? Remember, when you show you're trustworthy in little things, you'll be trusted with big things. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates, comments, or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can also leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Instagram, our new favorite place, we are at Emily Post Institute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. On Twitter, we are at Emily Post Inst. Just remember to use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette in your post so that we know you want your question, comment, or feedback on the show. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And today's feedback comes from either Guy or Guy. I am not sure which the pronunciation is, but both are options. And it's in relation to episode 246, where one of our listeners wrote in about a chateau experience that she had had, where there was quite a lot of protocol to each individual moment upon staying at and dining at this chateau with a family in France. And it was it was a pretty funny tale. It had a, a lot of a lot of etiquette moments that were cringeworthy and just you really felt for the girl who was writing in for sure. But uh, Guy or Guy wanted to write in about that particular experience. Dear Lizzie and Dan, I just wanted to sympathize and also comment on Gillian's chateau experience. Having lived in France, I have also experienced some of the French obsession with correctness, i.e. that there is one formal French way of doing something that must always be adhered to, to display you have breeding and education, and that any lapses must be corrected. As you know, it is critically important for hosts to make their guests feel at ease in their home and at their table. Her water glass should have been filled at the beginning of the meal, and her host or the maids should have filled it for her and the chef should have removed any gristle and cut the chicken small enough to swallow. Perhaps she should not have omitted a slight pretend cough to signal she needed water. As far as I am aware, it is perfectly acceptable to eat or not the rind of both brie and camembert as it adds flavor and texture to the bite. However, if you don't care for the rind, it's just as acceptable not to eat the rind. Many don't. It's now a preference, not a rule. 
a guest at my Paris apartment once chastised me for cutting myself a piece of hard cheese incorrectly at an informal gathering from the middle of the wedge and not the side. However, this was because I didn't want rind, and that was my preference, my cheese, (laughs) and in my own home. While they were well-meaning in their instructions, the young ladies' hosts sound rigid, condescending, and overbearing in their attitude to their guest, who was not able to be at ease and enjoy her visit in their country home. And that, I'm afraid, is the worst etiquette breach in the entire story. Warm regards, Guy. Thank you so much for sharing this. It's another added perspective on just the different ways that different cultures and different types of people within different cultures operate. There are certainly people over here, even in even in sweet, sweet Vermont, who will tell you how to do something and in your own home when you are providing them as a host. And, you know, it's it's always an interesting, delicate balance between educating and informing or having an interesting conversation or being downright rude. And it's a it's it's all in how you do it, what the familiarity is, what the situation is. It's why there's never one easy answer to any of these situations. And I love your focus in the end on a host responsibility to help their guest feel comfortable yeah. and at ease and enjoy that hosted experience. And this certainly felt like a case where that wasn't what was going on. I've always wondered if aggrieved guests have ever just really been like, you know what? Your responsibility in all of this was to be nice to me and make me feel welcome. And you didn't. So I'm out. And I just like you're waiting for those moments when people just blow up and leave. <laughs> and yet good etiquette dictates. That you don't do that. Gee <laughs> or guy, thank you so much for the feedback. And thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates. Please keep them coming. You can send your comment or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And today we're going to look at an episode from Emily Post's life. And this is sourced from the biography of Emily Post by Laura Claridge. This particular story takes place at Emily's debut, so her debutante, where she's actually coming out to society as a woman who is available, eligible, of good breeding and stature, that she would make an excellent, you know, wife and mother companion in these ways. And it's a really delicious insight into the Gilded Age and its world of entertainment for the wealthy. It's certainly not the life that we lead today, but... But uh, very interesting to imagine. And Laura Claridge does such a delicious job of both painting the picture and presenting some of the realities of Emily's own ego in the process. (laughs) We begin. By the beginning of 1889, the year that would end with her debut, Emily had already spent several winter seasons in New York society. She felt constrained by her repetitive city routine. For the most part, just more of the same classes at Miss Graham's, plus the inevitable practice in deportment. In January, the endless sessions of dance lessons had turned serious. Emily's nervous friends filled up their weeks with different classes or actual dances nightly. Ward McAllister's family circle dancing class, the assemblies, the patriarchs, the Tuesday night dancing class, the Wednesday class, and the Thursday, and so on. Although one could not predict the steps a dance master would call for his German, there were certain expected standards. Those routines currently in favor clearly deserved extra practice. All in all, a limited number of sets existed, though at times it seemed a terrifyingly large list of choices. Practicing her steps between lessons was the most important homework assignment a young woman of the Gilded Age would ever complete. Whether attending parties for her own crowd or for the older girls in the class ahead of her, Emily would be accused by jealous young women of deliberately making a spectacle of herself. It was true that her imposing height of five feet nine, the gift of her tall father, gave her the edge in terms of immediate attention. She usually arrived late in the evening, around 11 o'clock, for a dinner served at midnight. But Emily really did tire easily. 
In the pictures of her from that time, doctors note her protruding eyes, possible evidence of a thyroid problem. The condition would affect her energy and her weight, another problem she began having within a few years of her debut. She found the social schedule she was required to keep burdensome, and she felt forced to attend only the most important dances. Even so, her days now passed in a flurry of activity. Elsie DeWolf remembered vividly, even after all the histrionics her life had undergone, her own debut almost ten years earlier than Emily's. My days were a whirl from shop to shop as I said goodbye forever to plaids and gathered brogans. There were silk stockings for evening wear and fine lyle for every day. There was handkerchief linen, underwear, and a real corset of white brocade and Swiss embroidery corset covers and voluminous petticoats starched until they could stand alone and dresses of silk and satin and mousseline de soie and soft cashmere tucked and ruffled and shired in the elegant confusion of the styles of that day. There were hats, too, for every hour and high-heeled shoes of kid and satin and boxes of kid gloves of different lengths. Emily and her friends finally graduated from the years of monotonous dance lessons, now faced months of tedious dress fittings, the seriousness of the couturiers reinforcing the purposefulness of their mothers. When their season arrived, the girls needed to have everything in order. Josephine, always frugal, discovered the best immigrant seamstress available in New York to sew her daughter's wardrobe. Let the Astors order from Monsieur Worth if that's how they wanted to spend their money. And money was at the heart of the fanciest balls. The favors at the grandest cotillions came from Tiffany's or the shops on the Rue de la Paix. Grandly delivered to the 1,200 guests gathered at Delmonico's lavishly catered dinners. On a clear December night in 1889, 17-year-old Emily Price was indisputably the belle of the ball. Or at least one of the brightest blooms in the garden of rarefied flowers. As the Times noted... This dance brought together an unusually large number of distinguished society people in order to introduce several fair debutantes to their own. Tonight was the first exhibit of the season's cotillion. The novelty of a new group always exciting. If she couldn't be on stage, this was an ideal venue for Emily Price. At the beginning, Emily was put off her game by the late hour. Months earlier in Baltimore, she had been presented at a correct afternoon tea, where she wore a gown of white silk mull and lace and carried, with help, almost 50 bouquets sent to her by admiring friends. Up north, however, they did things differently. The opera had kept most of the societies otherwise engaged until 11.30, a late starting time even for the notorious New York dances, and an hour when Emily preferred to be in bed. But the very point of Gilded Age revelry, after all, was to dispel the notion that people worked for a living, meaning that the hours had gotten longer, not shorter, over the past few years. Immediately acclaimed as one of the most beautiful debutantes ever, Emily was one of only two, or ten depending on whose account we believe, debutantes that season, and the next who knew how to cross a ballroom. She had enjoyed participating in the design of her gowns, and now her stark white mousseline de soie with off-white embossed embroidery looked angelic and glamorous at the same time. Emily's bodice was pulled even tighter than usual, her skirt a bit fuller, even diaphanous. Her delicate pale skin was heightened in color by the pink wax crayon she had used on her cheeks and mouth. Her dark hair was curled softly, not unnaturally, and not tortured into bangs and a tight chignon like the style chosen by some other debutantes that season. In the code for flowers that the late 19th century still used, the red roses twined through trellises throughout the ballroom symbolized a girl's coming adult sexuality, and Emily Price certainly looked ripe to be plucked.
She glowed, nervous but in a good way. Challenged to live up to her own and to her parents' high expectations, Emily entered Delmonico's through the usual portal on 26th Street, where she was redirected to the Fifth Avenue side of the building. Here, she would enter a salon where East Indian and Portuguese silken embroideries draped the walls and electric lights illuminated the marble. Moorish-style flowers by the society florist Clunder set the stage for the Hungarian band playing a full blast in the outer rooms. The fashionable Landers Orchestra performed in the ballroom until supper was announced. After dinner, Emily took center stage. In her excitement, the easily fatigued young woman summoned new reservoirs of energy, and she danced the cotillion almost continuously for three hours. No record exists of the exact sequence of steps employed during the early morning hours, but a typical agenda would have contained a set with a grand march, waltz, shot stitch, lancers, and polka. At least three sets, the limit was eight, were danced, the order of each dependent upon what was called. The dancers had to concentrate hard, especially when the dance master announced sudden variations within a routine. The few who executed the wrong steps looked especially foolish, causing others to trip. Man or woman, if you had failed to do your homework, you'd be completely humiliated and the object of communal pity and disdain. By the time her official debut at Delmonico's was over, Emily was exhausted. As she would explain later, she nonetheless never faltered. Gracefully, triumphantly, she gathered so many lavish bouquets pressed on her by admiring young bucks that even her best friends expressed envy. The smarter men, by sending extravagant flowers to Emily's home that afternoon, had obligated the debutante to invite them to tea. The other girls were awed that she won so many of the prizes for Best Dancer, everything from decorated hand mirrors to a small mirrored jewelry box. After each routine, she needed help carrying her haul to the table. Emily would find an excuse to recount the story of her debut throughout her adult life, noting that the girl who is beautiful and dances well is the ideal ballroom belle. More importantly, a young girl's success was ruthlessly measured by her ballroom popularity. Reality was best, whatever the handicap, for those not so blessed, some of the greatest bells ever known have been as stupid as sheep. A cheerful disposition and lack of self-consciousness would compensate for much. But in 1889, the young triumphant Emily Price had no deficits, nor any rivals. With her ramrod posture and delicate yet strong face, she commanded the stage, appearing almost otherworldly. Even her heavily lidded eyes added to her appeal, provocative when she was merely trying to strike a serious pose. The eligible swains vigorously pursued the young woman, permitting her admittedly big feet to rest only when she was too tired to dance any longer. Burdened by all her prizes and the flowers she had cleverly woven together into a kind of elaborate combination shield and muff, Emily required four men just to carry out the bouquets lavished upon her. Her carriage looked like a florist's shop. I want to go back in time and witness this. I am so glad we don't live in that time. (laughs) You could do it, cuz. Oh, my gosh. That sounds just... I love how all the education is about dancing. I like that. No, I know you like that. I'm, like, loving it as, like, a oh, come on. There are so many more important things to learn in life. What's more important than dancing? I know. I hadn't realized that with debutante balls, there were there were prizes for the dances that were danced well. I hadn't realized that the actual dancing and knowing of the steps was such a marker of whether or not you were a capable young person. I had no clue that the way the bows, all the bucks, the young bucks, the swains would g- deliver flowers and bring flowers and press them upon her, and that it just it, it was fascinating to hear kind of this whole really what courting was like for these people who literally only had time and money to spend in their lives. I am reminded of the Scorsese film, The Age of Innocence, Mm -hmm. which with Scorsese's flair depicts this world very effectively. And it doesn't cover a cotillion like this or it doesn't cover a coming out ball, but it covers the 
some of the annual events that were part of this yes. scene and, and paints a very vivid picture that's just visually where I go as I listen to Laura Claridge's incredible descriptions it's why, of that world. It's it's why I decided to read the whole thing. It's a long section for our show, but it really did for me show both a lot of attitude of the day, a lot of attitude of Emily. I hadn't realized that she tired so easily, things like that. So it was it was one of those places where I felt like I really picked up what her younger life must have been like. And it sounds fairly exciting from this this quiet Vermont <laughs> stage that we are on. <laughs> Although it is definitely a to-be-continued story because where that particular season left her in her life was it a situation that ultimately she found unappealing? Dan is speaking about Emily met her husband at this particular ball and she was quite entranced by him and later it leads to divorce. So for those of you who are interested, this book is actually available on Audible. It is great to listen to it. It's also a fantastic read. Emily Post, The Daughter of the Gilded Age, Mistress of American Manners by Laura Claridge. Thank you so much, Laura, for giving us a taste and a look into Emily's life. We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today we hear from Kay. Dear Lizzie and Dan, thank you so much for all the hard work you do to make the Awesome Etiquette podcast. I have learned so much from you both, and I deeply appreciate how thoughtfully you answer the questions that you are posed. I write to you today with an etiquette salute. This evening, I opened my mailbox and found a lovely note from neighbors around the bend notifying me that they will be hosting a graduation party for their sons this coming weekend and letting me know that there might be extra noise or increased traffic as a result. They also invited me to join the celebration. I so appreciated the advance notice of the party, and I feel like the note helped ward off any annoyance that I might have felt on the night of the celebration had I been disturbed by the noise or traffic and not known the cause. The invitation to join the party was so generous, and I hope to take the opportunity to introduce myself to these neighbors that I have not yet had the chance to meet. Their thoughtful notice was certainly not necessary, but was greatly appreciated. And I aspire to apply the same courtesy to my neighbors if I have a graduation party for my children in the future. Hearty congratulations to Lizzie on the new book, and best wishes to Dan and Pooja on the anticipated arrival of your second child, who is now here. This is a, a, an older salute, but thank you so much, Kay. My best regards, Kay. Kay, thank you so much. I love, I love this salute because this is exactly the proof of why forethought can really ease a situation. I mean, thinking ahead of time, letting someone know what you're doing, not necessarily asking permission, but being inclusive, being aware. You know, I think this is exactly what we're hoping for. It's such an excellent etiquette story. Kay, thank you so much for sharing it with us. And thank you for listening. Thank you to everyone who sent us something. Please connect with us and share this show with friends and family and coworkers in whatever way you think will make them most likely to try out the Awesome Etiquette podcast. By email, you can reach us at awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. By phone, you can leave us a message or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst and... At Lizzie A. Post, that's Lizzie with an I-E. On Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. And on Instagram, we are at Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting awesomeetiquette.emilypost.com. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on your favorite podcast app. And please, please consider leaving us a review. It does help our rankings, which makes us easier for more people to find and might just help make the world a kinder place. Our show was edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. Bridget.